the Masai Mara, the Grand Canyon, and the Great Barrier Reef. According to the BBC show, 50 Places to See Before You Die, these are the top three places that you need to see before you die. And that show wasn't just a one-off show. That, it kind of sparked an entire genre of bucket list making that has become extremely popular in our day. In fact, when I was in seminary living in Texas, the Texas Monthly Magazine came out with an issue, the 63 best tacos you must eat before you die. And listen, I enjoyed working my way through that list. Now listen, if tacos aren't your thing, I'm not really sure we can be friends or that I can trust you, but if tacos aren't your thing, you can find books and websites that will urge you to complete their list of places to go, things to do, albums to listen to, um, uh, uh, movies to watch, things to eat. I mean, there really is no shortage of lists that everyone says, this is the list. This is the list you must see, must do, must experience before you die. And, it's in, and, and all of it is aimed at making sure that you don't miss out, right? There's, there's a subtle uh, promise underneath those lists that says, if you don't complete this list, if you don't make your way through it, you, you really are missing out. You've kind of wasted the time that you have on earth. And for those who expect to live a long time, that 50 things you must see has been expanded to 1,000 things to see before you die. So you can really keep busy all the way to the end. So let me ask you this. What do you want to see before you die? What's on your bucket list? What do you, what do you want to do before it all ends? Have you written it out or is it more of just a, a mental list? And today as we finish our Songs of Advent series, we're going to meet a man named Simeon. He's one of the lesser-known characters from the Christmas story. You're not going to see Simeon in the, in the nativity scenes, but we don't want to overlook Simeon. Simeon is a man ready to die. There's not an ounce of FOMO in him whatsoever. He's completely satisfied, and he's ready to meet his maker. He's completed his bucket list of what he needs to see before, our die, before he dies. And what's so surprising about his bucket list is there's only one thing on it. He has one thing on his bucket list, and that's seeing the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And when Simeon sees Jesus, his joy is uncontainable, and he bursts forth in a glorious song. Now, Simeon is not knocking your bucket list. He's saying bucket lists are fine. You can have your list. But if Jesus isn't the top priority on that list, you're going to miss out on the hope and the peace and joy that can only be found in Christ. See, it's entirely possible. And I don't think it's just possible. I think it's entirely probable that many of us in this room right now have deprioritized Jesus. We've, we've knocked him down on that list. Some of them, he's not even on your list. But a lot of us go, listen, I, I want Jesus on my list, but if, I, but if I put him at the top, I might miss out on some things. And so what happens is, is we get distracted with all these lesser things. And even though we like see him intellectually or know that he exists, we can miss him. Simeon shows us this morning that in order to not miss Jesus, you need to have a certain kind of eye. 
There needs to be a certain kind of, 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 of motivation behind your eyes so that you don't just see Jesus and miss him, so that you see Jesus and behold him. Simeon is going to teach us that in order to see Jesus this morning, we need to look for him with devoted eyes, determined eyes, and discerning eyes. That if you don't have those kind of eyes, you are going to miss Jesus. Devoted, determined, and discerning eyes. So let's look at Luke chapter 2 this morning to see how we can look for Jesus and not miss him. Let's begin in verse 22. Luke writes, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they went to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, none of us are first century Jews. All of that sounds like a bunch of nonsense to us. But Mary and Joseph were faithful Jews. Just like all faithful Jews, they circumcised their son Jesus on the eighth day. They obeyed the Lord. Remember the, the angel of the Lord told them what to name this child, they obeyed that angel and named him uh, Jesus. And now they continue in that obedience to follow two separate ceremonies as outlined in God's law. Let me explain them to you. The first ceremony is this. Um, it's the purification of a woman 40 days after giving birth to a son. Now, if you've never seen birth, you can probably just believe me and tell you that it's a beautiful but bloody and messy thing. And Jewish law required ceremonial purification following birth. Now listen, giving birth is not sinful in any way. It's actually one of the most beautiful things in the entire world. But it did require a ritual sacrifice in order for that person to become ceremonially clean once again. Now one of the big category uh, mistakes that we often make is we think clean and unclean is the same as sin and not sin. And those aren't the same things. When you sin, you can become unclean, but you can also do things that aren't sinful that just make you um, unclean. So in the Bible, clean and unclean, if you're reading, um, have more to do with coming into the presence of God. So not only would, would you come there to make sacrifice for your sin, but you had to consider, am I in a state of cleanness or not? Because I can't just casually walk in uh, to the temple like I'm just walking in to a coffee shop. God, God wanted you to recognize that he is holy and you are not. And so you need to be thoughtful and be prepared as you enter into the presence of God. So when you were in a clean state, you could come into God's presence. But when you're in an unclean state, you could not. So think of voting, okay? In order to vote, you have to be registered, right? If you're registered to vote, you may vote. If you're not registered to vote, you can't, right? It's, it's, it's that simple. A, state, a person in a state of cleanness is not necessarily more righteous than a person in a state of uncleanness, though they may be. Just like a person who is registered is not necessarily more righteous than a person who is not. They're dealing with different things, okay? The point is that clean and unclean laws have more to do with a person's participation in ceremonial worship than a person's moral record. doesn't mean that they're not connected in any way, but they're talking about two different categories that have a little bit of overlap. The clean and unclean laws gave direction to all sorts of everyday matters, like diet, 
what they're eating, daily habits, interactions with others. If you read through Leviticus, there's all these clean and unclean laws, and you realize these are very domestic. A lot of them just have to do with the, the stuff you're going to come into contact with on everyday, uh, as you live your everyday life. So if you're follow, and these laws were, were given to them so that they would learn that following God impacts the everyday stuff of life, and not just the everyday stuff of life, but every aspect of your life. In fact, as Christians, we would do well to remember that God is not some peripheral thing. Following God impacts the everyday decisions of your life. Following God is not something you do for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. It impacts every single decision you make. And these laws were meant to, 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 to emblaze that on their minds. So as a faithful Jew, you would constantly be thinking about uh, uh, and working hard to remain in a state of cleanness. And if, you, and if you found yourself in a state of uncleanness, you would then be wondering, okay, what do I need to do? What procedures do I need to take in order to get back to this state of being clean? So after giving birth, Mary would have become unclean. Again, giving birth is not sinful, but it did require her to go to Jerusalem and to offer a purification um, sacrifice. And according to the law, this would have been a, a lamb and a pigeon. But the law also made concessions for the poor. So if you were poor and you couldn't afford a lamb and a pigeon, then you could give two turtle doves or two pigeons instead. Now, there's a second ceremony going on as well. This is the presentation and the dedication of uh, a firstborn son to God. If you are familiar with the biblical story, this ceremony and sacrifice was, uh, uh, was meant to remind them of how God had delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Remember the let my people go thing, right? They're, in, they're, they're, they're bound in slavery um, in Egypt, and God delivers them out of uh, out of that slavery. And the final plague that essentially broke Pharaoh's back was the death of the firstborn son. Remember that? They had to take a, a slaughtered lamb and paint the door uh, in order so that the angel of death would pass over them. And, and, and every firstborn son in the house with the painted blood on the door, they were preserved. They were saved. So then later on, God says, do you remember that time when I spared your firstborn son? Do you remember that? Now, forever, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember my mercy and my grace. It's not, I didn't save your sons because you were more uh, uh, righteous than, than, than the Egyptians. If you read the biblical story, you find out that during that time period, they were worshiping the same gods in Egypt. But it was that God set his love on them and decided to create for himself a people. It was God's love and mercy that spared them, not because of their moral record or performance. And he says, forever, I want you to remember it. Why? Because you're so prone to forget. God can be gracious to you in one moment and then a phone call. The very next moment, you can turn away and forget that God has ever been gracious and real in your life. Right? We can become ungrateful so quickly. And so he says, listen, I'm going to build this routine into your life. So every time you have a firstborn son, you're going to dedicate them to me. You're going to remember that I spared your son. This ancient ceremony reminded them of the redemption out of slavery and God's provision of grace to spare their sons. Now listen, these ceremonies, these sacrifices, they might seem arbitrary and they are certainly distant from us. But these sacrificial and ceremonial laws had a purpose. The first purpose is this. 
The sacrificial system was meant to help them see that a relationship with God informs and impacts every decision we make. It impacts everything we do from what we eat to how we interact with others to the daily habits of our lives. A relationship with God is not something you uh, decide once uh, in your life and then you never have to deal with again. it's, It's about knowing and loving and following him with every step we take. And the second thing is this. The sacrificial system was meant to create in them this longing inside every heart for a day when he or she would be forever and always clean. I mean, think about just having to, to, to uh, always think about your interactions. Am I, am I coming into something that is unclean and now I'm going to be uh, uh, unclean because of it? And I have to do these sacrifices and ceremonies. Every time you know, I, I sin, I've got to uh, 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 make this trek to Jerusalem to make a, uh, make a sacrifice. It would have created in you this longing. Lord, will there ever be a day when I am forever and always clean? Sin clings to us so tightly. Will there ever be a day that it's gone? And that longing in them would have been for God's uh, uh, complete and total restoration and renewal when every barrier to God's presence would be overcome. Do you ever feel like you have these longings for God, but it feels like he's distant, like there's this barrier? That's there because we live in and we are a sinful people. That is a real barrier, and that should create in us a longing for the day when God will remove that barrier forever. What would our lives look like if we approached our everyday matters like this? What if we considered the implications of our everyday decisions and how it impacted our relationship with God? Is there a longing in you for God's renewal and restoration that day when every barrier to God's presence will be overcome. So for these two reasons, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are in Jerusalem headed to the temple. Now verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, and he had been waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So now we're introduced to Simeon, and we find out he's just a layman. He's not a priest. He's, he, he, he lives in Jerusalem. And instead of a full background of, of his professional resume and what he, what he does for work, we're told of his spiritual condition. And we're simply told that he is a man who is righteous and devout and that he had been looking for the consolation of Israel, the, the, the comfort, the deliverance of Israel. And we find out that the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, to be called righteous meant that God's word and God's law mattered to him. He was upright. Now, that doesn't mean perfect. There's only one perfect human who's ever lived. But there was this drive in him to obey God's law. So in the Bible, when you see someone described as righteous or or, or devout or upright, it meant that they really cared about God's word and they tried with everything they had to live a life that was pleasing and honoring to God. And as a devout believer uh, in God, he was careful with the way that he lived. He was faithful. Um, he was spiritually sensitive. He was conscientious and cautious about the way that he lived his life. Now, if you take those two things together, righteous and devout, Simeon was a man that you could say walked closely with God. Have you ever met those kind of people? When you meet him, you just go, man, there's something about this person. There's a, there's a holiness about them. There's a, there's a, a, a level of, of uh, integrity to them. And it seems like they're, they're connected to a God in a way that, that I am not. 
He's been waiting his whole life for the consolation and the comfort of Israel. If, you, if you're a history buff, you know that Israel had been under one oppressive regime, regime after another. And the political oppre- uh, oppression is eclipsed by the fact that the nation as a whole is struggling spiritually. So not only is there a, a foreign occupation, but just the spiritual life of, of, of their country is just at an all-time low. There's not been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. They've been waiting in silence, waiting for God to make good on all these promises that are latent in the Old Testament for God to bring a deliverer, for, for a Messiah, a Savior to bring about comfort and deliverance from their oppression. And this guy, Simeon, would have had passages like Isaiah 51.3 stored up in his heart. Isaiah 51.3 says this, Certainly the Lord will console Zion. He will console all her ruins. He will make her wilderness like Eden. The wilderness is like a place of desolation. And he's saying there's going to come a day when that desolate place becomes like the Garden of Eden. Her desert like the Garden of the Lord. Happiness and joy will be restored to her. Thanksgiving and the sound of music. You see, a, a complete and total transformation. He would have had that, uh, that promise stored up in his heart. If you see the first word of that is certainly, certainly the Lord will do this. And he's wondering, when will that come? His hope was centered on the coming Savior who would bring uh, comfort to the nation of Israel. See, God had promised that he would send a Messiah, and Simeon put his trust in God to fulfill that promise. As a devoted man, his eyes are primed. They're ready. He's looking for a Savior. He is locked into God, looking for his salvation. You know, when your eyes are locked in on something, it means you're not looking at anything else. Simeon knows if there's Uh, salvation to be found, it will be from trusting in God and clinging to him. You could say that Simeon had devoted eyes. You ever seen devoted eyes? Devoted eyes express love and loyalty and trust. You know, you may not be able to describe it, but when someone is looking at you with eyes of devotion, you know it. I see those eyes when I look at my wife. Her eyes say it all, and and I can tell from one look that she loves me, that she's for me, and that I'm safe with her. And I hope she sees the same in my eyes too. See, devoted eyes aren't about faking some kind of look, believing something different, and then expressing some kind of masquerade. You can't fake devoted eyes. Devoted eyes are are birthed out of actual love, actual loyalty, actual trust in a relationship that actually um, uh, 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 marks that relationship. And when you have that kind of relationship, you can communicate all of that with one simple look. See, our eyes were made to express devotion. It's why people often say that eyes are the window to the soul, right? They can just communicate so much. So let me ask you this this morning. What do you look at with devoted eyes? And notice, I didn't say, do you look at things with devoted eyes? You are, a, you, you are a person of devotion. We are made in such a way to give our love, to give our loyalty, to put our trust in something. You and you've never met anyone who wasn't wired like that. Everybody looks at things with devoted eyes. The question is, is what do you look at with devoted eyes? 
Where is your love and loyalty directed? Again, everyone has love and loyalty to direct somewhere. The question is, where are you directing it? Where do you look to find your safety and comfort? And whatever you're looking to for those things, safety and comfort, love and loyalty, that's where your devotion is. The question is never, do you have devoted eyes? The question is, who or what do you look at with them? Simeon's love and loyalty and trust were given to the Lord. He was devoted to him. He wasn't looking anywhere else for hope and joy. And the question you need to answer today is, do you have devoted eyes for God? But not only did Simeon have devoted eyes, he had determined eyes. Look at me at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we learn that Simeon, he receives a special word from the Holy Spirit. He hears from God. In fact, Simeon's name means one who hears. That's what his name means. And he hears and he receives a promise from God that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. It's like the Spirit told him, Simeon, I have someone I want you to meet. I want you to see him. And when he heard this from God, when he, when he got this promise from him, it produced in him a determination. Armed with this promise, he was determined not to miss the Messiah. See, that promise became an anchor for him. And he waited patiently for the Lord's timing and the fulfillment of his promise. And so uh, we have to ask, how long did Simeon wait? I mean, when we meet him, he's kind of at the end of his life, but we're not told how long. But what I do know is that it doesn't take long for me to give up waiting. We're just not a patient people, right? I know I am incredibly impatient so when I hear something from God or, or if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm told to expect something, I'm like, okay, the timetable has started and I want to know when I'm going to get it. I want it on my timetable at my convenience. Anyone else like me willing to admit that? Okay. But Simeon was determined to wait on the Lord and to be ready for the day when he would see the Lord's Christ. For Simeon, his determination fueled his patience to wait on God's timing. He believed God's word was real and that it produced in him a determination to wait. Now look at verse 20, uh, 27. And when he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, pause here, Simeon now we find, so he's been waiting, right? He hears from the Lord that he's going to see the Lord's Christ sometime in his lifetime. And now the Spirit leads him to go to the temple at the same time that Mary and Joseph are there to offer their sacrifices and to perform their ceremonies and to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. See, he's not loitering. He's not merely hanging out. He's, he's living his life, but he's sensitive and he's listening and he's ready for this God, uh, this divine appointment. See, God has arranged this meeting. And the Spirit directs him to go to the temple. And as he does, verse 28, he meets Jesus and he takes him up in his arms and he blesses God and he says, Lord, now, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. See, the Lord directs Simeon to Jesus, right? And he, and he asks to see the child. Now, we're not told how Simeon knows that Jesus is the one. We don't get that bit of information. We don't know how the, the spirit confirms in his heart that this child 
is the long-awaited uh, for Messiah. We just know that somehow Simeon knew. He knew, right? You don't just walk up to people and grab their children. You can get arrested for that kind of stuff, right? He had to know, like, like that's the child, right? The Spirit confirms to Simeon that this is the promised Messiah. And at the same time, as parents, you don't just hand your kids over to people, right? There must have been something about Simeon and his approach that didn't frighten or alarm Mary and Joseph. And you got to also realize, too, Mary and Joseph, like this hasn't been an ordinary pregnancy, right? This is divine conception. There's been angels appearing in and out of their story. People have traveled from long distances to see them. I mean, nothing about this birth and this, this child has been um, uh, ordinary. And so they're, they're kind of just ready for the unexpected, right? And so this man comes up with these devoted and determined eyes and is, and is reaching for the child, and they just kind of go with it. And they hand Jesus over to him, and Simeon takes this child up into his arms, and he blesses God. Just imagine, man. The wait is finally over. When he says, now, now you can let your servant depart in peace. All his determination, all his focus has finally paid off. His joy is uncontainable, and he sings praises to God. His song is not just mundane, everyday prose like, hey, the wait is over. It's good to see you, Jesus, right? This is exuberant joy in poetic verse. If you're looking at it in the Bible, that's why it's indented. It's poetry, it's song, it's verse. He's singing because in his hands is proof that the world's lament will end with comfort and joy. Over the years, he had used those same hands to pray. He'd used those hands to serve the Lord. And he used those hands to be ready to take hold of God's fulfillment. And now his eyes behold and his hands take hold of Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, who is the consolation of Israel. He sings, now I can depart in peace. Now, if we were to interview Simeon, we would find that there no doubt have been days that were hard for Simeon to stay the course, right? He's got this promise uh, 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 waiting for him, and yet there would have been days where it would have been easy to be distracted. There would have been days where it would be hard to keep that kind of focus. There would have been days where his faith was shaky, but now he can rest because in seeing Jesus, he has seen God's salvation. You picture Simeon like a, like a watchman, right, during that night shift. It would have been easy to, to nod off and to, to fall asleep and to, to leave his assigned post. But now that he sees Christ, his shift is over. He's played his part in God's redemption story. He's been faithful to the end. And now when the time comes, when it's time for him to depart, he can do so in peace, primarily because he's met the Prince of Peace. See, only a life marked by determined joy in the Lord can depart in peace. You see, Simeon, he didn't wait in vain. God had been faithful to uh, his promise. So we have to ask, do you have determined eyes to wait on the Lord's promises See, if we're going to see Jesus and have the kind of joy that's found in him, there needs to become a grit about us. 
We need to become a, a, an anchored people, a determination to stay faithful to the end, anchored by the promises of God despite our circumstances. Look at me, Seven Mile Road. There are going to be circumstances in your life, trials, sufferings, things that are going to try to uh, uh, knock you off the foundation, to, 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 to knock you over, to, to, uh, 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 where you might drift away. The promises of God are the anchor that keep you rooted and to keep you uh, grounded. We are a people anchored with promises. And because of Jesus, we have the promise that the impact and devastation of sin will be totally and completely dealt with. Look at me. If you are in Christ right now, you would say, I am a believer in God. Let me remind you of the promises that you have in Christ. And these are promises that are true for you right now, not later. Right now, Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin by his blood. You are not awaiting punishment and judgment and wrath. That has already been taken care of. Advent is that season of the year when we celebrate the first coming and the birth of Christ, but it's not going to take long for the wood in the manger to become the wood on the cross where Jesus is crucified, not for his sins, but for yours and mine. And listen, unless you think Jesus was a victim, he tells us that nobody takes his life from him. Rather, he lays it down precisely for this purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give it, to, to, to lay it down for us. And everyone in Christ has had their just penalty for sin paid for in full, not in part, but the whole by the blood of Christ. If you're in Christ, that is true of you. But also in Christ right now, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, such that the power of sin is progressively weakening over you. See, ours, our world is not a world where it's only winter and never Christmas, as Narnia once was. You know that, that part in the book, or maybe you, you saw the movie, when, uh, when, when, when Aslan comes, what happens? Winter begins to thaw. The curse is, it's always winter and never Christmas. We live in New England, right? We're okay with the winter, like up until Christmas, right? It's like, hey, there should be snow on the ground. It should be cold. It's Christmas. But after Christmas, we want it gone, right? No, we got a whole year to wait until it's Christmas again. But our world is not a world where it's always winter and never Christmas because Christ has come and the winter is beginning to thaw. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that out there. It's wicked cold out there right now. But I'm telling you, the spiritual sense of winter is thawing and it is giving way to spring. Winter is thawing. The curse of sin is weakening and its power over us is progressively loosening. Look at me. You are no longer a slave to fear and sin. Without Christ, you could do nothing else. You are a slave to sin to obey your master. But in Christ, you have been set free so it is entirely possible, and it actually is our role to play to be the children of God that we are so we can pursue holiness and righteousness, and indeed, we should. When a believer comes to me and says, Pastor, I, I, I have to do this act of sin, I go, no, 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 you don't have to. 
You are no longer a slave to sin. You can choose holiness. Now, I'm not saying you will actually always do that and walk in total perfection, but don't give me that you have to. Don't believe that lie. The power of sin is weakening, and you are no longer a slave. You are an heir, a child, a beloved son and daughter of God who can choose and should choose holiness and righteousness. You should not be looking at God's word and see what it says and go, no, I'm not going to obey that one. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. The power of sin is weakening, and you can choose holiness. And here, finally, is our third promise. Here is why we can be anchored with determination, because Christ will come again. As sure as your penalty has been paid, as sure as the power of sin is being weakening, there is coming a day when Christ will come again and remove every shade of presence of sin. Christ will come again and bring about the final and total and complete consolation of the church, the renewal of the world such that the very presence of sin will be totally removed. So that in Christ, the lyrics of Isaac Watts and joy to the world becomes true, that he makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. When Christ comes again, wherever you see the curse in this world, it will be removed. And when it's removed, in place of the curse will be the blessings of God. Seven Mile Road, do you have determined eyes anchored by the promises of God? Simeon had devoted eyes and determined eyes, but let's keep going to see that he also had discerning eyes. Verse 30, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now don't miss the goodness and beauty of this truth. Simeon says that in seeing Jesus, he has seen God's salvation. He equates those two together. He says, I've seen Jesus, and because I've seen him, I've seen salvation. He's discerning here. Discerning means to see something and make a judgment about it. To see something and make a decision about it. Not just to see it and go, well, don't know what that thing is. It's to see something and go, that's a chair. Now, I know everything I need to know about it because that's a chair. I've made a discernment about that metal object thing over there. I've made a call on it, and I know what you can do with that thing. He's recognized that Jesus is salvation. Seeing Jesus is seeing salvation, and he's doing so with the eyes of faith. So many people see Jesus and miss him, or unwilling to make a discernment about him, or unwilling to make a decision about him. But Simeon says Jesus is salvation. Now think about it. He was told that he would see the Lord's Christ, but he wasn't told how it would come about. And he didn't know that in his arms he was holding the God who had become flesh. He didn't know that this 40-day-old baby was the ancient of days, the pre-incarnate Christ who had lovingly enjoyed communion with the Father and the Spirit from before there was time. He didn't know about that. He didn't know the implications of the incarnation. He didn't know that there was coming a day when this child would be uh, uh, hung on a cross to conquer sin and death. All he knew was that this child was the Lord's Messiah. And he took that and by faith knew that he could trust God to fill in all the details. 
So many times we withhold our discernment and belief because we want to have every detail figured out. And look at me. That's not how this thing works. God is not going to give you every single detail of how it works out, Almost, mostly because we couldn't handle all the details. It's a lot. There's, there's a lot to process. But God, in his, you, you would expect, right, a God of infinite wisdom would have some things that you and I just couldn't figure out. But he saw the child with his eyes, and his faith filled in every gap. It's faith that gives us spiritual sight to see that Jesus is salvation. See, without faith, you will miss on who Jesus is. Simeon saw Jesus for who who he really is because by faith he had devoted eyes. He didn't get distracted. He had determined eyes to stay the course. And then when he saw Jesus, he had eyes of spiritual discernment by faith. And as he continues to sing, he exclaims that God is not a reactive God. He said that God has prepared this child. He's he's proactive. He's sovereign. He's been directing the course of human history to ensure its salvation. And not only that, not only has this salvation been carefully designed and prepared beforehand, but now it's being ready to be revealed to whom? To all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, so that People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will have access to this salvation. Here we find that Israel was never God's end game. It wasn't just meant to save Israel. It was meant to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It was meant to be extended to everyone. Why? Because everyone is in need. Everybody, you included, is in need of salvation. Why? Because death is the great equalizer. It puts all men and women on equal footing. There's all kinds of things that would make us unequal from uh, your pedigree and your past, your accomplishments and your, and your accolades. And we, could, we could detail out, but death is that one thing that puts us all on equal footing. Everyone has to figure out how will you keep the light going when death brings its final darkness. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire. At the end of his life, Steve Jobs was trying to figure out, how do I keep the light going? He, he, he talked about, I, mean, I have money on top of money on top of money, and it's not enough to keep the lights on, right? Simeon says, God has sent the light of the world to conquer darkness and keep the lights on. Jesus is the light. He's the breaking dawn into a world of sadness and darkness and despair. Jesus is the revelation needed to answer all the deepest questions and longings of the human heart. And the only way a weary world can rejoice is because Christ breaks in to a new and glorious morn. See, Simeon had discerned where our salvation and hope will come from. Out there, there's many pseudo-saviors. There's many divergent paths that all claim to have salvation, but there is only one Savior, and there is only one way, and his name is Jesus. Now, verse 33, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I love that simple line, because after Simeon says all this, you know, Joseph and Mary are kind of taking it back. Their, Their song left them speechless. You see, about a year ago, an angel of the Lord told them to name this coming child Jesus, which means God saves. His name in, in, in Hebrew would have been Yeshua, Yahweh 
saves. But they didn't know how, and they're kind of believing that by faith. But now through Simeon, God has brought confirmation. This child has come, and and Simeon says, yes, he is the one. He's the one you've been waiting for. And they marveled, not because they didn't believe, but they marveled because they did believe. Now, did they have all the details? No. Did they have perfect faith? No, because no one does. But by faith, they marveled that the Lord's plan is to provide a savior. Now, before they part ways, Simeon gives Mary a special word, a sobering, discerning prophecy. Look what he says. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So it's a bit cryptic there, right? All this praise, a blessing, and then, Mary, there's going to be a sword that goes through your soul. Now, if we think of Simeon's song in terms of music, we have the first minor chord, right? To notice that something has changed. And Simeon says, this child, Jesus, has been appointed for the fall and rising of many. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus will become a dividing line in the sand. The offer of salvation is extended to all, but not all will receive it. Each person has to choose and determine and to consider the offer and decide if they will receive and believe it. See, for many, the way of the cross and God's plan will seem foolish and they will reject him. And and Simeon is saying that rejection, to reject Christ, will lead to your fall. For those who embrace God's salvation, it will actually lead to their rising. And then he also says, God's salvation is on display for all to see. But only those with devoted, determined, and discerning eyes will be able to behold the beauty and grace of his salvation. And then Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce through her soul. Now he doesn't give an explanation But if you read on in the Gospels, you know that as the world rejects Christ, he increasingly faces um, trials and suffering, eventually climaxing in his crucifixion on a Roman cross. And as Mary watches this happening to her son, she's got a front row seat to all of his suffering. Imagine just a, a, a mother, right? More than it, she's a mom watching her son grow through this. And watching this happen to her son will be like having a long, double-edged sword piercing through her heart. And Simeon is telling us that redemption comes at a cost. Peace comes through conflict. Light, by its very nature, into the, dark, uh, the darkness brings a division. It calls darkness dark and commands it to flee. Those who love darkness will hate the light, as those who love light should hate the darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world that brings that division. I mean, you think about it. Just the very name Jesus causes a stir in people, right? We can, we can talk about God a lot of times, kind of generically, and people are okay with that because it's like, well, you can define God how you want, and I'll define God how I want, but you bring the name Jesus up. And, and all of a sudden, the, the ears perk up, the eyes open up, because there's, 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 no, there's no mistaking who you're talking about at that point. You're not being generic. You're not being ambiguous. You're saying Jesus. And his name is a dividing line. 
He will be that dividing line in the sand that reveals our hearts. Because Jesus does bring peace, but he does it in a way that is through conflict. He is a coming savior who lays down his life to ransom many, but when he comes again as the king, he is a king that we must receive. He removes the curse through judgment. Or another way to say it is, he, be, he brings peace through conflict. And that's the message of Christmas, that Jesus brings peace, but it happens through conflict. Now think about it. Here's a couple of examples. How do the allies bring peace to occupied France on D-Day? Through conflict. They invade Normandy. And if you find out that you have cancer wreaking havoc on your body, how does the surgeon bring peace to your body? He cuts you open and removes the tumor. It's the only way for your body to have peace. Jesus brings peace on earth to those who receive her as king, to those who have prepared him room. Simeon is saying, you have to respond to Jesus. You can't stay on the fence. There is no such thing as a neutral non-response. That in of itself is a rejection. You don't ultimately get to sit on the fence with Jesus. Anything short of a full embrace is by definition a rejection of Christ. So for some, Jesus will not be a sign of hope. For those who reject him, he will be a sign of judgment. Now listen, if you're here today and you're on the fence, let me just tell you, Seven Mile Road is a place that believes in gospel, safety, and time. We've, we've tried to build a church where those three promises are a backbone and a pillar. And what it means is this, we will be loving and truthful to tell you the truth about God. We will, we will tell you the good news. We will be willing to tell you that, that Christ, though he brings peace, it happens through conflict, that he is a dividing line in the sand and that you need to make a decision about him and that he is the way, the truth, and the life and there is no other way of salvation except through him. We will, we will love you enough to tell you the truth about what we are, are, are banking our life in as well. We'll tell you that without Jesus, life ends and despair, but that with Jesus, we have the hope that our penalty for sin that we, that we deserve is be, it has been paid for by the blood of Christ. But we're also going to be a safe place for you, a community of people where it's okay to not be okay, where it's okay to be um, in progress, where you can um, express doubts, where you can be a skeptic, where you can um, try to understand the good news of Christ with people who will walk beside you as you are journeying on your journey of faith. And we're also people who will give you the gift of time. You have all the time in the world that the Lord gives you. No one knows but God how many breaths you have left in this life, but we never force anybody into making a decision until they're ready. Gospel, safety, and time. You can always have those at Seven Mile Road. Simeon closes with a sobering word. He's saying you need to make a decision. You need to discern where salvation, joy, and hope can be, ha can be found. At some point, you have to make a call one way or the other. See, eyes by their nature, that's what they do. They discern things. They see things and, 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 and they make a call on what it is. So do you have eyes to see the real Jesus and to see that he alone is your joy? Christ came 
and was born for your joy. He lived for your joy. He was crucified, died, and raised again for your joy. And he lives right now so that you would be reconciled to God for your joy. Your eyes, everyone's eyes in this room were meant to look for joy. That's what we do. And right now, you are casting your gaze at what you think will give you joy. The question is, are you looking to Jesus? And if you're looking elsewhere, let me ask you this. How's that working out for you? Are you finding that it gives you unshakable joy? Or is it merely circumstantial joy that changes and fluctuates from one day to the next? If that's the case, may I suggest that maybe the object of your joy simply cannot deliver on the joy that you were made for. Maybe it doesn't produce unshakable joy because it itself is far too shakable. See, our joy is only as good as the object of our joy. You will have joy to the degree of the thing that you are looking at can give you. Anything short of God himself will fall short of the joy that you were made for. And if you're thinking today, if I go in on, all in on Jesus, I might miss out on some things. Let me tell you, if you look to Christ, you will find unshakable and immeasurable joy such that everything else pales in comparison. Only faith in Christ can produce the kind of joy that you were made for and that will ultimately satisfy. So don't sell yourself short. Don't settle for joy uh, uh, in these other lesser things and miss out on the deep anchoring joy that's found in Christ. Let me pray for us.